Welcome to NavChat, the show for the New Zealand orienteering and navigation sports community. Hey Tom, welcome back for another month. Hey, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm yeah, very into orienteering at the moment. Yeah, yeah, big month for orienteering. Nationals yeah. down in uh, um, Nelson being obviously the highlight. How was your uh, weekend down there? Well, I mean, how was the not just the weekend, but the sprints afterwards? Yeah, the, the whole thing was um, like very pumpy on orienteering. Um, we were all very enthusiastic. And especially with teams being announced shortly after and people starting to plan trips to Europe for the first time in a few years. Uh, yeah, we're all pretty excited. And it was a big uh, schedule down there with uh, four nationals races plus two national sprint league races. After that, um, I was pretty much cooked on uh, at the end of the, the relay at nationals. And it was definitely tough doing those two days of sprint racing afterwards. So yeah, it's, it's a big program with those. I'm not sure it's the best to do that every time, but um, it was certainly fun to do it once such a big program with so much high intensity racing. Definitely. I've, we've, we're going to talk a bit about various things uh, later on, but just obviously one of the races that's a big one that week is the relay. Um, how did, how did it go down? Yes. Yeah, so the relay was quite exciting. There were some, probably four quite good teams, actually, uh, Nelson, Papo, Auckland, and uh, Northwest. And uh, we, we got second, Northwest, and um, we kind of came from behind a little bit on that last league uh, to uh, get into that second place. So that was that was very exciting. Uh, and it was really exciting. I think the first league was um, a league I opted out of this time and ran third, unusually. And it was so cool to see some of the top juniors running that first league and uh, battling that out. Um, also, Chris Vaughan <laughs> in there with the juniors. Um, it was just quite a different group of people we're used to seeing uh, at the front of the mass start. So that was uh, really cool to see. And uh, they, they were hitting it out there. They had some very fast times on that their first leg, uh, even though um, Joe Lynch and I were doing third leg. So that was cool. Mm. What do you reckon? I mean, cool. I'm, a, I'm a, maybe a traditionalist. Maybe I'm just old. Uh, I missed the change in format to be honest i used to really like that i mean i wasn't there but just seeing the results i used to like the fact that it was required a, a junior a more senior runner an elite from each club rather than this current situation we've got mm -hmm. with different age groups i don't know what was your gauge of the the feel this year with this format yeah i, I think it's the way to go from now on as the sport gets bigger i think there's enough top runners in in the club's to fill out a, a three-person relay team. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think 10 years ago, that was definitely questionable. Um, there were only, yeah, maybe two clubs that would put together three uh, elite level runners. Mm. Uh, and so I, I think that old format was probably the right format to go. And I think we might've reached a stage where this new format is actually uh, the right format for our sport. Um, I'm really glad uh, from a high performance perspective that we have a relay like that. Also, uh, Oceania or Australia champs was the only other time we could do a pure elite relay. So yeah, I'm pretty happy that it's, it's not actually an argument between which one's best. Uh, I think it depends on uh, what stage of growth uh, the sport is at. And we're just kind of in that area in the middle where we're switching from a tiny sport to a small sport. <laughs> 
maybe it will re-emphasize an event like Kato Po where there's a more of a mixed club. Uh, I really hope so. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to talk a bit more about some of the other races later on. Uh, you spoke to, speaking of juniors, you spoke to one of our old, now older juniors um, and caught up with just kind of a, like where things are at for Will Tidswell. Yeah, that's right. Will's one of our uh, top juniors going to Jaywalk again this year. And he had a uh, unique national story, to say the least. So, yeah, I caught up with him for some chats. All right, let's have a listen. Hey, Will. Hey, Yo. How are you going? Good, good. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. I'm looking forward to catching up. How was your yeah. experience at Nationals? It was certainly um, different to what I expected it to be like. No, it, was, yeah. it was actually wasn't too bad. A, a week in isolation could have been a lot worse. Um, yeah, walk, so. us, walk us through what happened because I guess not everyone has always had Nationals. Um, it's, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. surprised not to see you, but um, <laughs> yeah. So what happened? Um, so me and my mates went up the West Coast and um, we went tramping. Little did I know that my flatmates had got COVID. And so once we got back into reception, they gave me a ring be like, hey, we're tested positive. You might want to check. Um, and this was the day before the sprint. So I was like, sweet. I'll, I'll just double check to make sure because I was feeling a little bit tired, but not, nothing really. Um, and then turned out to be positive. And so... Yeah, it was a bit of a weird one because I couldn't say with anyone because um, it was positive and all my mates and their families were, you know, they were like, ah, but he didn't, which is fair enough. And so the government came along in their white van and picked me up and then dropped me off at a really nice um, hotel, actually, and free food and free accommodation. So. But were you already in Nelson? You weren't at home. Had you come straight from the West Coast to Nelson? Yeah. 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 <laughs> So, yeah. Could be worse. When, when was that positive test? Was that uh, the evening before the evening sprint or before the morning? The yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So everyone's locked and loaded at that stage. Like everyone's mm-hmm. got their travel, their, their travel plans are underway um, yeah. by that yeah. stage. So yeah, that's a bummer. <laughs> Did you get to spend much time outside in Nelson? Were you just hanging out um, in the quarantine? I'm not actually sure what the quarantine things are like now. Like, I don't know if they've got more lenient or is it still you're confined to yeah. the hospital? No, they're, they're, they're very both chill and very um, uptight about it. So they said I can go for as many walks as I want. I just I can't go more than like 200 meters or I've got to like con- confine, confine my walks and wear a mask and not two meters. But that was all good. So, yeah, I was allowed to go outside, which is nice. Yeah socializing yeah yeah <laughs> cool well we'll move on and i have to say congrats for making the jaywalk team again so how many years of jaywalk is this for you i guess it's a bit hard with the last two years not really being counted but i'll let you kind of count it yeah. as you want it as you want to um so overseas wise this would be my third time going overseas so uh, first one was hungry and then second was Denmark, and then the two-year gap with COVID, and so it's Portugal this mm. year. Yeah, so I do seem to recall that you were quite young when you when you went to that first one um, in Hungary, and I wanted to, to ask a question. So how old were you then? Um, I was 15 when I went oh, over. Yeah. Do you think one, like yeah. a 15-year-old Will would um, make the team this year, or do you, do you think like the caliber is, is getting stronger? Good question. Um, 
I'd say no. Um, that's, that's hard because, I mean, if you look at the past performances of all the team, people who come to the team, when I got into the team at 15, um, they were all, like, really, really top tier um, and they were all a lot stronger. I think, I think the people who got into the team this year, they're a lot faster um, and maybe better at NAV. I don't know. That's a hard question. Yeah, it's impossible to know. I did notice this year at Nationals that a number of those uh, like last one or two years in, in junior or like first year uh, in senior grades are really strong at the moment. Mm. Um, it was pretty cool to see uh, in, in the relay at Nationals just how many young ones were kind of taking those those fastest times. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, so, but that that's cool that they'd already had JWAC trials and you'd already got some good enough results that it didn't mean too much. Uh, it sounds like mm. there were a few other people who are in the team that were affected by COVID either couldn't run trials, but had some good races at nationals. So uh, it's, yeah. it's really good. There were at least two trials uh, this year, especially. Yeah, that's for sure. What are you looking yeah. forward to most this year as you head over for just checking your final year as a junior? Yeah. 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 Do you feel a little bit of, of pressure to you know get your big results or yeah. How does it feel? Um, yeah, well, I mean, with the past two years, basically completely off of orienting or any sort of sports for everyone, it's sort of, I don't know, for me, and I know a lot of others, it's sort of taking a step back and be like, there are a lot of other things out there. Um, and it sort of meant that because I hadn't had anything to aim for, I haven't really been um, keeping to my peak as I usually would have. Uh, so getting around to it this year and it actually being on, I was like, wow, um, I might have to start training a lot harder. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've started doing that, um, getting back into my original performance and getting that training plan um, underway. But, yeah, I don't know. It's, I think I think it'll be interesting to see if I'm any, any stronger because, I mean, I'm definitely – older and that comes with more strength so i think through the terrain i'll be a lot a lot faster but um and i hope i got my nav down but i don't know i don't know it's, it's always hard to tell in comparison to how the europeans and scanies do yeah it is really hard to know i haven't personally noticed a good link between the amount of orienteering that i've been doing and how good i perform uh, sometimes yeah. I'm doing a lot of training because I'm feeling a lot of pressure about performance and that uh, pressure ultimately leads to too much nervousness on race day and I do really badly. So yeah. coming into a chill is, isn't is at all like a, a sign of yeah anything bad. So yeah, I, th- I think you can do just as well as, as you've done um, on any, any other year and likewise for everyone else. Um, we're really looking forward to seeing uh, s- s- how... Um, the team does it does look like quite a good team so have you yeah. had a look at the the terrain in portugal yeah yeah so it looks pretty similar to um australia especially cascades those are the map that i'd probably relate it to the most um so lots of well this is for terrain lots of open ish bare rock um 
sort of not undulating, but like nice steepish slopes. Um, very similar to Australian. So, and I, I think someone, I'm not sure who, but someone um, told me there was a correlation between how well Portugal did when they came to Australia for walk, I think. Like that. yeah there was there was a jaywalk um yes yeah, some like a decade ago that's interesting yeah. and yeah I, I i'm definitely looking at the australians to see how well they do because the maps do look quite similar uh although yeah the the vegetation and the like the shape of the rocks could look different once once you're in the terrain we'll see but yeah that, that that's definitely an observation that i had um and the terrain looks cool like it looks detailed and, and very yeah. interesting so um, yeah 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 what a beauty to be going to such cool terrain uh, on your final year and neutral terrain as well like not, not going to sweden yeah, where, like all of the true. scandinavians are uh-huh. so optimized for that yeah um, yeah it's it's something that could it could have a more even playing field so um good for the the kiwis and the aussies and also for all of the uh, central and eastern european countries as well so yeah hopefully uh, an open uh jaywalk so yeah we'll, we'll be watching uh will and also the rest of the team yeah it's going to be good so hey thanks for spending some time uh, with us hey thanks jane awesome just about as good as your nationals tom oh yeah you're just about um it's uh oh, it's uh interesting that this i mean it's going to continue for a couple of years isn't it people's uh, race schedules are going to be interrupted by unforeseen circumstances um yeah, but I think beyond what happened to him at Nationals this year, it's interesting to hear how uh, someone who's been to Jawa quite a few times, um, just to hear how their approach has probably changed over that five years, just kind of speaks to it's a time of life when people are going through a lot of change and growth in their lives. Um, and I'm sure that people who've been to their first Jawa or their last Jawa will probably reflect and see that the way that they've approached the racing can be quite different. Uh, from a, from a from a mental side of things, mm-hmm. yeah, um, I definitely felt like only having done two jaywalks that I still hadn't really matured, and it wasn't until doing multiple large competitions after that it was really only on my fourth big time representing New Zealand that I had matured enough to like handle the race day. So, well, having d- done a number of them, could be in that position as well. And I think you see this with with every run. It's not just doing your last jaywalk it's actually how many you have under your belt yeah i, I, think, I think quite high the pressure thing as well is an interesting one you know you asked um i can't remember how, quite how you phrased it but it was to do with um hoping for like some big races over in at, at jaywalk in europe i think that that approach can be like a little bit of a myth i think trying to think that you're going to do your best performance of the year on the other side of the world in this situation is kind of a bit of a a false way to look at it you kind of i think need to have a consistent approach and be running well and just deliver another performance like you've been doing earlier in the year trying to do things differently on race day is a surefire way to end up screwing things up yeah and having been that person who's gone from really high hopes to screwing it up i am quite frequently passing that advice on that, hey, maybe you should just lock in a top 40, right? And just be be satisfied. And I have been accused of being demotivating and that's possibly true. Uh, but I feel like there's some wisdom in what we're saying here. 
it's less about and also that's that like intrinsic versus intrinsic motivations it's not like you're going to show up to your pinnacle race of the year and suddenly start running two minute 50 k's and like navigate perfectly you should instead be thinking like what are my key techniques i need to execute really well here because ultimately what we're trying to do is not win we're trying to orient here well and then what happens will come um i think kind of Following on from this, we can kind of get into one of the big traps that get people in these big events. You, be it WOC, JWOC, Nationals, you come into these events super hyped up, mentally really keen to orienteer well. Um, but on the day, those myriad of thoughts can actually inhibit or, or, or negatively impact on what you're trying to do with your orienteering. And, and one of the big ways it does that is through affecting your concentration. You're unable to focus on the core orienteering skills that you need to execute and you can't concentrate on what you need to. Shall we, um, I have, the, I understand that you wanted to go into that a little bit. Yeah, I'm definitely keen to talk about concentration. Um, it's very topical for me at this moment uh, after nationals and kind of always has been something I've been interested in. And yeah, we hang we, it on. Do you want to hang it on an example first? Do you want to give yeah. us like a um, scenario and then we can discuss from there? Yeah, I, I think I've got, got a, a good example here uh, that I, I wanted to share. It's an, it's an interesting one because we often think about our interior as physical training and we think about our technical training, but there's actually this, soft or um third pillar which is the kind of concentration mental skills control side of things which actually allows you to execute the orienteering skills it almost underpins all the orienteering technical skills yeah um i I, th I think that's right and i want to pose a a problem here uh, i'd like people to consider this is quite technical orienteering this is a red level uh, course for sure and i'd like people to consider this start triangle heading south down to 26 27 28 and just to imagine running this leg and you, you leave the start triangle what's your concentration like at that moment you leave the start triangle does it have to be really high do you have to be really concentrated i'll let i'll leave that for people to decide and what about coming into 26 and navigating 27 28 what's your concentration like when you have these legs that are close together. And I certainly notice that when my orienteering is not good, I will only be concentrating when I'm close to a control. And so when I get these longer legs, I just switch off and just try to run it quite fast. And then I start concentrating when I have to get close to the checkpoint. And so 26, 27, I'll be really concentrated and on the money. And then you give me a longer leg and I completely squander the opportunity to plan ahead because I'm, I feel no urgency at all. Does that make sense so far? Yep. Is that something you can relate to? Does your concentration waver depending on how urgent the navigation is? Yeah, I think, I think you could write, certainly probably the way I think about it is one more to do with like, what's at, what's your cognitive load. Um, I guess we've got a whole heap of external factors that we can think about. When you're coming to an orienteering event, you've got what's happening in your life. How big is the event? Um, is this something which I'm wanting to really race hard today? You've got kind of this pre-race factors, which you can control and optimize to set your state of mind. 
Then you've got your actual, how is my brain functioning while I'm doing this leg? Um, we could think about our brain, or this is certainly how I think about it with orienteering, as having a certain amount of kind of mental capacity to process things simultaneously. Like a computer, you can only have so many tabs open on your web browser before it starts to slow down. Um, so running a leg from the start to 26, you flip your map over, you've got this really complicated course. It would be amazing to like look ahead and be able to go and do courses that, or to plan ahead and do the controls that come later in the course. Um, but I mean, you can't do that while you're trying to get into the map, navigate through all of these contour features and, and, and settle yourself. So you need to schedule all of these different abstract thoughts in such a way that you're not going to overload that cognitive capacity of your brain. Mm -hmm. So using this as an, as an example for me, start to 26, I would probably be largely focused on where I am, where I'm going, how am I going to, in a quite um, didactic way, apply structured orienteering techniques to this league to make sure I execute it correctly. Um, I'd resist pulling myself to look ahead at the rest of the course because I want to use all of that mental energy to get into the map. Um, 27, 28, I'm going to be in a similar situation. And maybe if I'm feeling good by that point, I can start to shift some of that mental effort to planning ahead once I'm past control 28. Yeah, so I think you've outlined the trade-off really well. At one, on the left-hand side, you've got um, this scheduling challenge of putting in too many things into your head uh, at any one moment and, and overloading yourself. And on the other hand, you've got trying to maintain high speed and high reliability with your navigation um, all of the time. And that involves not slowing down because you haven't planned ahead. So before you before listeners decide what's right and what's wrong, I think you have to know at what stage you are at in your orienteering navigation development. And I think for most of my time in orienteering, the, the, the former has been where I should have been hanging out. Just get each control, just one at a time and don't complicate the issue. Don't overload my processing capabilities. But now that I'm getting uh, better, I, I'm at the stage where I can, start planning ahead quite a lot and getting that scheduling right uh, is really important to enabling you to plan ahead and not compromise uh, other parts of the course yeah absolutely uh, agree absolutely agree and i think there's a um i think there's this uh temptation to keep your brain always overload like to always be pushing further if you've got a spare moment you should be looking ahead but we can also fatigue our, our mental system and you need to have periods within a race where you're able to, um, I guess, step out of the like mental anaerobic zone and just give your brain a little bit of a chance to recover. So um, longer legs, if you've got a 50-50 route choice, choosing to run on a track versus choosing to run through um, some complicated terrain, if you think it's going to be pretty similar these can be opportunities not just to give yourself a physical kind of rest, but to kind of back off on that mental concentration load and just allow yourself to, to drift 
the concentration level down a bit in order to be able to re-increase it when you need to. Um, do you have anything you use out there if you can feel like you are, um, if you can feel your concentration waning? Say that you are running this course, say you've done uh, 26, 27, 28, you've got 35, 36, 37, and as you're on your way to 38, you just your mind's just wandering, you're feeling like you're losing it. What Do you use anything to like refocus yourself? Yeah, I talk to myself, um, mm-hmm. not out loud, but in my head. And I start quizzing myself on future uh, parts of the course. So I'll start asking myself, okay, what's the attack point for the, the next, next control? Um, what's the exit direction? And just getting the, the, these bits of information prepared and lined up so that when, I, when it comes time to tackle that leg of the course, I'm already familiar with the, the main uh, stepping stones and uh, handrails that are going to be required. And in certain courses, especially like a long distance that has some track running early on, I find I can probably get most of the course planned out quite, quite early by doing that kind of stuff. But then on a sprint course that's intense from the first control, it's really hard to, to get ahead of yourself and, I'm building a little buffer of maybe one or two controls. And then that buffer is getting crushed as we go through some, some short detailed, some short legs in a detailed area, the buffer comes right down and maybe hits zero and I'm just on the fly. And then I'll try to expand it again. Yeah. So to help with your concentration, you are more along the lines of trying to re-engage yourself with another challenge of the course. If you feel like you're going through a part that's not sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. I drifted a bit, but I think to, to, yeah, to answer your question, I do notice that there is a cognitive ceiling. I can only do so much, but I also notice that a lot of the time I'm not actually close to it. I'm actually just totally faffing in my head. And so I, I want ways to increase the level of attention that I'm putting on the map. And I ask myself questions about what's coming up, a little, little someone on my shoulder, just quizzing me like, mm-hmm. what about this? What about that? Have you, you know, if you haven't planned all the way to the finish, then you can just keep going. So yeah, I, I'm trying to rev it up. Mm, mm, interesting yeah i've used um or in the past not so much anymore but i know when i was really uh struggling with this concentration thing i would actually say out loud to myself i'd say like if i could feel my mind mind wandering i'd say i'd say refresh out loud and in my mind i'd I'd train myself whenever i said that i needed to look at the map and figure out what i was going to next it was a way to kind of like have the the kind of audible cue kind of like push out of your like internal mental state because if you said refresh out loud and heard it I was like all right there's actually other things going on here I need to look at the map and I need to figure out where and what I'm doing next so I found I found that was useful for a while the other thing which was also useful but maybe in less intense situations I can remember when Martin Hubbard was here one summer he him or Ross or someone was saying if you're not looking at your map look at your map as a, like a uh, little kind of like um, mantra to help when you're really struggling to get into things. So again, that's something else I'll, I'll say to myself, not out loud this time, but I'd be like, I feel I'm wondering if you're not looking at the map, look at the map. Yeah. I was around when um, Martin Hoodman did that trip over here. We were um, juniors at the time, just getting into the kind of elite junior level and we were blown away navigating in the forest with him because he, he just had his map up all of the time. 
And it was just so obvious to me. That was a big part of my, my journey was just running with Martin for, uh, a, I think it was just a sprint course and just watching him like look at his map the whole time. And I realized that no wonder I suck. I don't know. I'm not actually looking yeah. at the map. <laughs> I'm, I'm barely orienteering. I'm surprised I get around the course with how little I look at the map. And so that was a, that just was like one day it was like a massive knock. And we use that mantra a lot. We just write it on our training maps. When you're not looking at the map, when you're not reading the map, read the map. And yep. that ha- really helped to overdrive my navigation. Uh, yep. So I guess to kind of wrap, I pull this back together. We've talked a bit about uh, concentration and how one, your physical performance, your navigation performance, it's all underpinned by your concentration while you're trying to execute skills out there. The first step is to identify that concentration can be an issue and to train it, to focus on trying to improve it. Some of the things we've suggested that you could do is uh, trying to acknowledge that there's a kind of cognitive capacity ceiling and trying to manage the amount of decisions you're making at any given point on course to try and push planning ahead to times when you don't have to do so much immediate navigating and when you need concentration on where you are then and there not to worry too much about not planning ahead um if you find your mind wandering some of the tactics you can employ are to re-engage in a later part of the course um, the use of mantras um, if you're not looking at the map look at the map or um even verbal or internal monologue cues to refocus what do you reckon would that be a fair summary yeah I think that's spot on. And what you're looking at on the screen is an example I like of a training exercise you can do to test these skills because it has this contrast between longer legs where the navigation is not urgent and very short legs in detail where the navigation is very urgent. And so you have to come to grips with this scheduling task and find out a technique that works for where you are at in your navigation. And we're all going to be at a slightly different point between wanting to plan ahead all of the time and um, needing to tackle one leg at a time. So here's a good example, I think. Yeah, quick, ad- quick edit to this as well. We've talked about this a lot in the orienteering context. What about the adventure racing context? Um, you could imagine a uh, stage that you're on for 16, 24 hours. You're navigating in the forest. Um, there's maybe some off-track nav. Um, you can't concentrate to the same degree doing something like that. Um, I think the other thing you've got to bear in mind is that you've got a team of four usually where you need to as the navigator maintain that concentration that vigilance at key times and also communicating to your team that that's required and I think from errors that we've made uh, over the years especially navigational errors it's been because that that team communication around navigational urgency and the concentration required hasn't been relayed out to the whole group um, so an example might be you're traversing a ridge line you need to select an important spur to turn off team is trying to be like helpful um, or it's the middle of the night and people are just trying to stay awake and a couple of the other teammates spark up some conversation just chatting to try and stay awake because they're not navigating and it kind of breaks your concentration that well they might get some food out and start trying to feed everybody, make sure you're eating when actually the priority needs to be on executing this navigational, um, this difficult navigational step. The communication of that concentration required is something that I think is often missing in navigation within teams. And it's probably something that 
in our team, we've started to do more and more, starting to make sure the team knows exactly what's next and trying to say, hey, we can not concentrate for the next seven hours once we get onto the spur, but we need the next 30 to 40 minutes to be really focused on uh, clear communication about landmarks you're trying to spot and not getting distracted with other things. That's really different, but the framework is exactly the same, isn't it? Yeah. It's cognitive overload. It's uh, I can't engage in a conversation with my teammates and try and eat food and try and make this difficult turn off down uh, a hill. And oftentimes these aren't necessarily your most, they're not your super tight control in the vague contour area that requires an extreme bearing because it's obvious. It's more the, here's a kind of turn off a spur that we could miss if we weren't paying attention. And you see it happen time and time again. Teams regularly bugger it up. Cool. So that's plenty of things about there to, to think about there with concentration. I don't think it's, I don't know about you, I don't think it's something I've ever really nailed, um, especially in big events, uh, but it's a something that's possible to work on. Um, you've got some news up for us. We had lots of happenings in New Zealand orienteering over the last month. What are we starting with? Yeah, just start with um, a recap of the, the JWOG team was announced. So uh, congratulations to the 12 that have been selected to go over to Europe. Uh, there's also uh, a coach, uh, Brianna Steven. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a really good group of talented juniors that will represent us in Portugal uh, this year. So uh, let's have a quick look uh, at at some of the, the terrain here. This is just uh, on the, the JWOC website. So there's a lot of these big areas of uh, bare rock in quite sparse forest and the trees are quite far apart. And so some parts look really fast, but then some parts have these uh, spiky bushes on the ground. Uh, mm-hmm. The sprint so isn't... Por- por- Portugal we're talking, isn't it? Yeah, this is in Portugal. So here's a quick look at the map. You can see those clearings and the semi-open uh, so scattered trees mixed in with the bare rock in grey. So mm-hmm. that's, that's really cool. This is quite different terrain and I'm really happy it's, it's not Scandinavian terrain. So uh, it should be more open for uh, many different countries to um, have a good crack and um, get in the mix for a terrain that no one, very few people have grown up on. Although we say not Scandinavian terrain, if you looked at those, could be some elements, sheet rock, point rock features, vegetation change, some tracks. Yeah. I think it's yeah, I see what you mean. The yeah, vegetation is if, very different. Yeah, the vegetation looks quite different. And I think a lot of the advantage with the Scandinavians is recognizing uh, the, the contours and the cliffs and the boulders really well in that style of terrain. Whereas this yeah, just yeah. looks on the ground so different. Uh, yeah. So we'll mentioned cascades. Is that a map you've run on over in Queensland? I don't think I've done cascades, but I have seen lots of maps in Australia that look similar to this although with less vegetation variation, I think. Mm. Cascades would have at least as much of this vegetation and lots of spiky bush. It's a very very tricky map. It's a big, long, long, slopey area um, near Warwick in Queensland. Quite tricky. And it becomes a what uh, vegetation and rock features can you kind of join up into like a coherent line to get to the control. Mm. Um, But yeah, I think Will was right on. It does, it would carry some crossover to this yep and small town sprint 
uh, that look, looks fun. It's always fun hooning yeah. around the the small streets, cobblestones, little alleyways. Yeah, so looks great. Great. that's all fun. Um, we also have the walk team announced. So I'm heading back over. Uh, again. Well done, congratulations! Another how many walks is that for you now? Five ish, five or six. Five. So yeah, I'm looking forward to racing some of these sprints. I'm looking forward to just having a crack. I, I'm not, um, I don't know if I'm in good enough shape to like make it into the, the top echelon. Walk is very, uh, very tough to make it into, you know, it's really about assigning medals to the, the top few. And it's pretty, um, you often don't get quite so much racing time if you're, um, you know, just there to try to qualify, which uh, could be me in my um, current running state. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's good, a, but um, it's not, yeah, the, the standard is really high now. So yeah, we'll see. It's also a sprint walk. And I think, I think a lot of the European countries have kind of cracked it with lots of depth now in their sprinters, but New Zealand, I mean, Hey, we've got um, Lizzie and Tim have automatic spots. So we're going to have four runners in each of the races, which is, we're going to be as big as some of the big teams. And I mean, we've got um, uh, top tens from Lizzie. We've got uh, Jaywalk and walk medals with Tommy and Tim. I think it's, it's exciting to have a team going, which I think has a lot of potential. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to our sprint relay. Actually, I'm mm. guessing uh, barring any injuries that we'll have uh, Joseph and Tim running uh, in the men's and Lizzie and uh, we'll see where the other girls are at, but just those mm. three out of the four is very strong actually. So uh, that could be a really good shot because Tim and Joe are really fast at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any, any knowledge of what the maps look like over there in Denmark or what you're yeah. expecting? This is an example here of some of the uh, sprint terrain that we're on. Yeah. There's this mix of uh, urban blocky buildings with uh, internal courtyards and passageways and then some some parkland with uh, one of the paths. biggest one of the biggest hills in denmark on that map perhaps. <laughs> yeah yeah this is this is it basically just cut and paste this kind of stuff uh, cool. there's another example uh here um very, very similar similar buildings very courtyards cool. so yeah it's cool it's not super detailed uh, but it looks fun and the spectating will be quite good. I think with these uh, open areas, I'm sure that they've got the TVs lined up. Have they signaled just the use the right of spots. artificial, artificial barriers or anything like that this year? Um, the, it, it's just always on the cards. I think they're so cagey about it now. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so we're not really going to know uh, until probably the, the final, final briefings beforehand, people will ask. Mm. Yeah. They're very cagey now. The organizers that, you know, realize they actually don't have to disclose a lot of things if it's mapped clearly. Yeah. It's only if it's ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we've also, we're awaiting the World Unis team as well. Yep. Awaiting World Unis team. One thing I wanted to talk about with regards to these big competition races is uh, the level of preparation that goes into these uh, now. And uh, they've get, they always give you all these old maps, but now they make it really public about how to access the uh, geodata, the publicly available geodata. And every team who's really serious is making their own maps in OCAD with the right symbols. And that includes us. We've got our own versions of, of the race maps. 
and that's based on LIDAR and other publicly available data. So that's a level of preparation that seems to detract a little bit from the sport philosophically because the terrain is not quite as unfamiliar as any other race that you haven't really prepared for. Uh, but it's that that is the way it is. Everyone does it. And if you're there to compete with the best on a level playing field, then you're doing it too. So uh, that's something that mm. just, instead of making it like cagey, that only the insiders and the locals can get the, the, the data to make these things, they just make it really clear that there's no there's no insiders. Anyone can get this data now. The Danish have kind of been the, they were very much the leaders in lots of this marginal gains through having the access to the maps in advance. So, yep. um, and creating, creating your own maps and running them on catching features or virtual O to uh, I remember when Walk Norway in 2010, they had run, hundred, well, hypothetically run hundreds of courses on the Trondheim uh, Centrum map, which, well, I mean, that's 12 years ago. We've now got all this LiDAR stuff and hmm, interesting, interesting thing for orienteering to grapple with. And it seems like just letting it all through is the way that it's being dealt with at the moment, because I guess, how do you control it? Yeah, it's kind of uncontrollable. So you might as well level the playing field uh, so that we're all on Secret the location. same page. It could be smoke and mirrors, or that would be the only way to do it, right? Embargo the entirety of Auckland. Yeah. And then you must show up to this location at this time. Yeah, I walk in Scotland embargoed lots of different towns. Yeah, uh, but eventually they gave it away. They they pivoted at some point. Um, yeah. But that was an interesting strategy to just make it very expensive to to prepare fully because you'd have to create all these different maps yeah. in all these different places, and you you didn't even know whether you're going to ever use them. So that's another approach. Yeah, it, it's, maybe that's a way we get through a whole lot of mapping in New Zealand. We could say we're going to have walk in one of these cities get these foreign <laughs> countries to map it for their elites and then afterwards ask hey if anyone's got any maps around do you reckon we could have them entry fee payable in dollars or a map <laughs> or, or, <laughs> yeah. yeah figure out the square meterage of map that would correspond <laughs> um uh you've talked a bit about new zealand champs well to say a bit you've done a self-titled mega post. I did. Nationals. I did. And I wanted to quiz you on a few things here. Um, I've refrained from reading it as instructed. I've just. Yeah. I which, saw this and they're like geometry. I figured there's a maths here, which kind of like <laughs> got me worried. So I quickly closed the tab. Yeah. I think some people found this interesting. At least I did. So I wrote about it. Which one of these do you feel like is the shortest and which is the longest? I think, well, just looking at I think D is the shortest because I think it's a trick question going backwards from two. It just looks, the line looks the shortest. I, I'd say, is F the longest? Yeah, we'll have a look. We'll have a look further down. But I think it's that these things definitely act on my brain quite differently. Mm -hmm. so the, the shape of this uh, has, it, it took me some time on, uh, doing all this analysis on uh, quick route, quick route. I use um, on my GPS routes afterwards and deciding where is a mistake and where is not a mistake. And yeah, I came to some conclusions that we'll, we'll get to uh, further down. Um, the, the, the other, the, the main thing I wanted, oh yeah. And I've got some examples of 
what what these kind of deviations look like eight eight to nine you can see this nice curve where i've just curved away from the straight line and then curved back but there was never really a, mis a mistake moment in any particular part of the leg uh, again uh, 13 to 14 here in this middle one and we'll show so this is the some more specific numbers on exactly how far away from the straight line you are so on a and b, Ooh, b. You're, you're you're very far away from the straight line on b um 34 the length of the line away from the line whereas d you're you know you're overshooting by 10 and then coming back by 10 and i'm not sure if the numbers really help people people's intuitions here um but i think when you do the analysis it um you want to be aware of what these kind of deviations correspond to so that you're not saying that a is a massive mistake when maybe it's actually not a massive mistake there's a few other straight straight is not straight is not always great yeah that's certainly something i've been saying for a long time uh 15 is another good example of the overshoot where i've run in the wrong directions for 45 seconds and come back uh four to five we've got a squiggle uh, nine to 10. That was a really good example of me. I was, I, I was confused for a while, but I maintained high speed. And you can see that moment when I figured out exactly what's going on. And there's a really sharp change of direction straight to the control. So I've deviated. I never stopped. I still maintained race pace. How much time have I lost by doing that? Is this actually, it looks bad on, because there's nothing, there's no reason to deviate from the straight line. It's not a root choice, but how much of a mistake is it compared to faffing in the control circle? Mm. There's some other very clear examples of like these types of deviations and, and exactly, yeah, how they manifest in the terrain when you make these kind of errors and how to, how to deal with them. And when you review them, which ones are actually big issues, which ones actually cost are costing you the big time. So um, we'll, we'll jump ahead. There's some other examples there. Um, so, so the answer is, yeah, of course, you know, it's always a bit of a trick question, but they're actually all the same. Uh, of course. Yeah, of, uh, course, of course. It's obvious in hindsight. But, uh, but you felt like D was shortest. So did I. It looks so much shorter, doesn't it? Yeah. But it's at 20% extra distance, 10% past the control, 10% back. True, yeah. So is B. It's actually only 20% extra distance to get yourself 34% away from the line uh, and back. So like mm. saying, oh, I made this massive mistake on B. Look how bad my GPS is. And then saying I made this small mistake on D where I narrowly missed the control and had to come back 10%. No, they're actually the same. They, they deserve the same amount um, of that kind of analysis and the same amount of training to prevent them because they're, they're both as uh, significant uh, as each other. And they, they both happen reasonably frequently. You know, you, the control was behind a boulder and you skimmed past it, had to come back. B took a terrible bearing, figured, realized you took a terrible bearing because you hit a track and then sorted it Do out. Do you think that like the shape analysis of individual routes could help as an analysis tool? Do you think being able to categorize your, legs into one of these categories 
and somehow assigning like a time behind the winner or a time loss to each of them could be a way to help target what you need to work on. Or is that yeah. trying to find a, that is that having a solution and trying to find a problem for the solution? Yeah, possibly. I, I think it's just, I, I think that could be true and I'm going to be investigating what, what more you can do with this. But for now, I think what's true is that if we want to be objective about our analysis, then we want to put the analysis where the time lost and the extra distance is being run. And that means that you should be focusing on mistakes like D where you're only just missing the control just as much on mistakes like A and B. Whereas I focused a lot on mistakes like A and B because it's so Mm. obvious on the GPS tracking. It looks so bad. You're so far from the line, but the truth is when you're running at high speed and you're not faffing around A and B are fine compared to C and D, Mm. which are are all the same. So it it just, it's recalibrated where I put my attention when I'm doing the analysis and like off the line, losing time doesn't seem to hold up quite as well as it did before I just did this analysis because F is just as bad as, as D and if it's like you, you've got no interest in staying on the straight line. On Off the line, you're losing line time is high risk, high reward. Yeah. So there's some other factors coming in, but I think the overriding theme that I'm, I think I'm trying to uh, give this a read. If you, if you're interested, we won't go into it too much now, but from doing this analysis on all of my, my nationals courses, what I've realized is the time loss isn't the majority of the time loss is not coming from the extra distance. It's coming from the mm. time standing still. It's coming from the stumbling around in a confused state. When you look at yeah. when you look at the mistakes um, that I've I've made here, eight. I, I I wasn't down that many seconds on eight. There's, I was running fast the whole time. If we look at some of these mistakes later on, here I've only losing ten seconds on eight to nine. Um, mm. only only five seconds doing this this wiggle here because I, I was doing it on the fly just maintaining high speed mm-hmm. so again this this looks bad it looks so bad on the gps but i've only lost 27 seconds over the whole leg doing this this extra mm-hmm. this extra and i reckon i lost about 10 percent just coming into the control site when i realized i was wrong and i was starting to mm-hmm. get confused and then another 20 seconds doing this extra, you know, extra leg of the triangle mm, that didn't mm. have to be done. So yeah. you could easily have lost a minute, two minutes on that if you were faffing around with the relocation. So actually maybe this analysis shows that it's actually not about which kind of deviation is worse than another. It's actually about the deviation is not the big issue here with orienteering. It's the relocation. It's the faffing around and the hesitation and the not getting yourself to an easy to relocate um, position or not having a good relocation strategy. So maybe that's yeah. something we should so go into a, next month. We should go into Indeed, relocation. indeed. Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's had some post. That's something um, it's across on your blog so people can have a read and maybe we can go into it a bit more detail next month. Um, last yep. little bit of news was something from IOF. Yeah, we got um, some updates on the questionnaire about uh, what uh, athletes would expect to see for the length of Women's Walk World Cup World Games, JWOC, and Regional Championship course lengths. 
Basically, and should men and women have the same length winning times? Which yeah, that was the question they were asking. Yeah. And it seems to be, I think, unsurprisingly, uh, uh, yeah, unsurprisingly, a good um, a, a trend towards uh, in- increasing the length of the uh, women's women's courses. Two thirds, two thirds agree. Yep, yep. And there's some yeah, different degrees on on how much people agree. Um, what I'm really interested in is what these numbers would look like when it's just the uh, women's elite um, answering. Um, I would like to see how, how their, their views have changed as women, women's sport gets more supported and athletes get fitter. And um, yeah, we'll see w- w- where the, the preference of the, of the athletes is. So yeah, there could be some changes Tove coming could, up. Tove could still smash us on a long. So it's I think so there's your fast. answer. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, it's good incredible. to yeah. see are IOF actually doing something for this, which is good. Yeah. Yep. That, that's right. They've got lots of these little working groups now that are, seem pretty proactive and uh, actually uh, asking the community some stuff so yeah so that's cool indeed cool so that that is our uh news and other segments for this month um we're a little bit late just in may but means we're closer to you heading away um because with uh what being on the cards uh, is there anything you're adding in special for your preparation for europe this year yeah well i am going to be doing more sprint orienteering training and I quite like sprint O intervals. So doing these short high intensity bursts and re- really pushing the navigational intensity up. Um, and yeah, I'm going to, going to be doing some of them. Um, preparation wise, I've got a, got a few nickels that I'm still, still kind of managing and hoping to increase the training load uh, th- throughout that, throughout this period. Um, but it's quite a short, quite a short period. So I've just had two weeks off, so I'm feeling fresh physically, which is good for like really uh, smashing out a good uh, four weeks of training and then some easier weeks. And I'm going to be going over a week and a half before my first race. So I'll have some time to go over there and uh, look at the terrain, do a lot of walking in the terrain and and not in the race terrain, but in similar, similar maps that they've recommended we used, do my own navigation training out there and just get really intimate with the mapping style and just spend hours walking around these, these maps. So that's, that's how I plan to do it. And I think that's really fitted quite well with what's works, worked well in the past. Um, familiarity has been, a, I think, a big contributor to the races that I've done well at and ones that I haven't done well at. Do you have any past experiences where you feel like your preparation was better than others? Um, preparation better than others. I think probably when I tried to be too uh, concrete on my plans and I tried to control things too much, I didn't go so well. Needed to be able to go with the flow a bit. I also think being in a good place when you left New Zealand and feeling like you'd done the work here rather than trying to move mountains when you're in Europe um, was a good thing. Um, and finally that being able to just get used to not just the terrain, but just being somewhere that's different, being able to spend some time in Norway before Rock in 2010 and, um, just get used to being there and the food and how the place works and, um, the climate. I think that's really good. Trying to take in, trying to take in the fact that you're on the other side of the world, having an amazing time as well as the racing, I think helps with that mental state. 
Yeah, I, but, I couldn't agree more that trying to move mountains in the final week has always correlated with terrible performance. Definitely, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm the hard work's done. Tired. The hard work's done here in New Zealand, not not yep. in the final training sessions before World Champs. Yeah. So if I could pass any advice on to the the juniors heading away, and the World Unis team later in the year, also that yeah, it's it you can't cram the training for this. You do as much as you can, and then you do a little bit just to sharpen up on on a few um, few final points before you get into racing. And yeah, other than that. Um, there's not much more you can do. So train hard while you're um, in New Zealand and take the last few weeks easy, but do some specific stuff. Sounds good. So that's it all, Drew. Yeah. Well, we will catch up before you go um, and do have at least one more of these. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, have a good month of training. Cool. Thanks, Tom. See you around. If you liked the show, please support it by sharing this podcast with one person who would benefit from it. The best place to find more content like this is at genebeverage.nz where you can find years of training blogs, race reports, podcasts and coaching videos. If you don't want to miss future episodes, I recommend subscribing to my newsletter by visiting genebeverage.nz or by following on social media, Perfect Flow on Facebook and Gene Beverage on Instagram. For Q&A, send messages to nav at perfectflow.nz.